Hello and welcome back to Cardio Connector, your connection to the Canadian cardiovascular community. I'm Seema Nagpal, Chief Science Officer at CCS. For today's episode, we focus on the impact of the wildfires in Canada on both cardiovascular and respiratory health. Our host and chair of CCS's working group on planetary health is Dr. Matt Bennett. He's joined by Dr. Stephen Wilton and Dr. Emily Brigham for our second podcast in this series, highlighting the connection between the health of our planet and heart disease. Thank you for joining us for another podcast as part of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society's podcast series on planetary health. Today, the topic we'll discuss is the effect of wildfires on cardiovascular and respiratory health, and in particular, how to assess air quality index, who's at risk, and what specific strategies we can implement to decrease this risk. This is part of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, or CCS's podcast series on planetary health, and originally, we were going to look at the association of activity and planetary health and diet and planetary health. But with all the wildfires in the news, we thought we'd pivot and speak about planetary health and wildfires and the effects on cardiovascular health and respiratory health. Uh, Before I get started, I'd like to remind you, you can subscribe to these podcast series so you get notifications when another is available. If you like this content, share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have further topics that you'd like us to cover, please contact me directly. I'm Matt Bennett. I'm a cardiologist and associate professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia. And pertinent to this, I'm the chair of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society's Planetary Health Committee. I have two very special guests. I'd written down special guests, but these are two very special guests with me today. Uh, The first is Steve Wilton, who is a cardiologist and associate professor at the University of Calgary. Uh, He's a member of of CAPE the Canadian Association of Physicians for the Environment, and he's a member of the Canadian Cardiovascular Society, or CCS's Planetary Health Committee. Good morning, Steve. Morning. Nice to be back with you. Yeah, thank you. My second guest is Emily Brigham. She's an associate professor of respirology and a respirologist at the University of British Columbia. She's a research scientist at the Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute, working in the Legacy for Airway Health. Her topic of research is the ways to prevent adverse respiratory effects of air pollution with a focus on wildfires and wood smoke. Thanks for joining us, Emily. Good morning, Matt and Steve. Thanks so much for having me. And I'd also like to say thanks for the promotion. I'm actually an assistant professor, but I appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just let your your boss know and I'll I'll do a good word for you. (laughs) So in our last uh, podcast, we discussed the link between air pollution and cardiovascular disease as an introduction to this topic uh, with the wildfires going throughout the country, uh, affecting many of us and in large cities and in places where wildfires really don't or haven't occurred before. Uh, We thought it would be important to do a special episode regarding the impact of wildfires on cardiovascular disease and respiratory disease. We'd like to talk about who's at risk during those times of wildfires, like which populations are at high risk, and what are the specific recommendations we should give our patients. So, Steve, let's start with you. Uh, Can you tell us about the cardiovascular effects of wildfires? Yeah, I I for sure will. I thought it might be helpful just to go through some basic facts about what's happening with wildfires in Canada and around the world before we get into that. And I think for a lot of us, it does seem like the burden of of that exposure is is increasing, and it really is. So, 
some stats, at least globally, there's been about a 77% increase in the population exposure to wildfire smoke since 2001. So just over 20 years, almost a doubling. And, and that relates to a few factors, mainly to the effects of climate change. So we have hotter, drier summers, earlier summers. We have sometimes stronger winds. We have more lightning that can lead to the increased risk of fire starting. And then we also have more people as cities expand and grow. We have more people living in areas where that are prone to wildfires. And so we have more people exposed. And then there are some changes in forestry practice that are also also driving that. And so we know that this is already increasing and is expected to continue increase in terms of the size, the intensity, the frequency, and the duration of the fires across, you know, land across the world. And, and, you know, Canada has a lot of forest area. So we are, you know, one of the areas that's particularly at risk for this. Here in in Alberta, where I live, as of mid-May 2023, had already been that you know had already seen the largest amount of land burned uh, in you know as far back as we've been measuring this in our province. So that's you know clearly concerning. And in terms of the health effects globally, uh, we know there's you know millions of deaths annually related to air pollution. And uh, I saw one paper estimating about 675,000 annual premature deaths related to wildfire smoke specifically. So it's not a minor problem. And so what the question you asked me is, how does it do that? And, you know, cardiovascular and respiratory illnesses are, you know, certainly the most important effects of wildfire smoke. All of us have experienced smoke at one time or another, and we know it, it doesn't taste or smell good. And it has a lot of different pollutants in it that can vary depending on what exactly has been burning. But the easiest thing to remember is, you know, suspended particulate matter particularly the, the stuff that's really small, so smaller than 2.5 microns in diameter that we call PM 2.5. If you look at the, you know, the air quality health index, that's mainly what it's reporting actually is the, is the level of PM 2.5 in the air. And that stuff uh, is a variety of components, but what it does is it goes, you know, we inhale it. It actually trans, transverses the lungs and the alveoli and gets into our bloodstream where it can cause a bunch of effects. So the acute effects are mediated by things like oxidative stress, inflammation, microvascular dysfunction, and autonomic imbalance. All of these terms that were familiar to us in, in cardiovascular sciences as, as bad things that cause, that cause heart events. We know that acutely uh, people who are exposed to smoke, uh, you can have a measurable rise in blood pressure. Uh, there can be plaque destabilization and existing uh, coronary plaques. Uh, there's increased myocardial oxygen demand, vasoconstriction, and the promotion of arrhythmias. Those things have been studied both in epidemiological studies as well as some experimental studies with controlled exposure to things like wood smoke. And then if you look at large population studies, we see that there are measurable differences in events, including cardiovascular mortality, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, emergency visits for many different cardiac presentations, including acute coronary syndrome, stroke, heart failure, more outpatient visits, and these have been measured generally with air pollution, but in particular also with wildfire smoke in different populations at different times. Thanks, Steve. Emily, how about the, on the respiratory side? What, what are the acute respiratory effects of wildfires on respiratory function? Steve hit on a lot of the really important points. And, and I will say, I, I really applaud you, Matt, and Steve, and the CCS for, for bringing a discussion about lung health into this. I tell all my patients when I see them, you know, your lungs and your heart are right next to each other. They work together and we really have to think about how they're functioning together as well. And it turns out that the same populations that are at higher risk for 
adverse outcomes with wildfire smoke exposure really fall into a lot of chronic diseases, but heart and lung disease are some of the two leading concerns um, with this as well. So when we think about the impact of wildfire smoke on the lungs, Steve outlined a lot of really great data about, and a lot of really great information about oxidative stress and inflammation. And that's really what we see in the lungs as well as a result of these wildfire exposures. And we know that through a lot of the same studies that Steve is talking about, looking at controlled exposures of wood smoke and actually measuring what happens in the lungs, in the airway epithelium, the lining of the lungs, but also by looking at folks who have a lot of exposure through work. So wildland firefighters are exposed to really high levels of wood smoke through trying to protect our population from these fires that can sometimes get out of control. And studies that have looked at inflammation from respiratory samples in wildland firefighters find that there's higher levels of inflammation after the fire, after doing a fire shift. And we also see changes in lung function in the acute setting, so lower lung function after a season of firework or after shifts and so forth. And a lot of what we know about the impacts of wildfire smoke on lung health really is in that acute setting. I mean, if we think about wildfire smoke, it's episodic, right? It happens during seasons. And because of that, we we look very closely to the timing of these events and outcomes. Populations with lung disease have higher risk of adverse outcomes. And a lot of what we see are exacerbations of lung disease, particularly among folks who have asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And when I say exacerbation, I'm speaking to mainly a physician audience here. So thinking about increased need for medications, increased symptoms, and oftentimes hospitalization and a requirement for healthcare and treatment in those sorts of settings. That's not to say that individuals with other respiratory diseases are not at risk. We just have the most data in folks with asthma and COPD. And I also want to highlight too, that we're learning more about how wildfire smoke and really air pollution in general may affect the body's immune system and how we fight off infections. So another higher risk group that we think about are folks who have respiratory infections as well. Thanks, Emily. That's that's amazing. So later on, we're going to discuss about the air quality index and how to assess that. I find it very confusing. Sometimes there's different numbers and different measures. And we'll uh, talk about the recommendations to give to people specifically, specific take-home points. Um, but before that, let's expand a little bit on who are the, the high-risk populations of having respiratory and cardiovascular event. You, you alluded to them, but how, how do you, you know, measure you know, who to, to say these recommendations to? And, and, and then we'll also discuss um, how to do that specifically. So, Steve, what cardiovascular populations are at increased risk? Well, I mean, the easiest thing to say would be all of them. Uh, but if, you know, if we want to get specific, the more morbidity somebody has, the, the more likely they are to experience a negative effect. So people with pre-existing coronary disease, left ventricular dysfunction, pre-existing heart failure, people who already have an established arrhythmia syndrome can have episodes triggered through exposure to air pollution and to wildfire smoke in particular. That's the sort of susceptibility part. And then there's the other component that we maybe don't think about enough, which is who's who's vulnerable. And so there are people who can't as easily get to places where the air is clean, indoor, you know, safe indoor spaces. So people who, who need to work outside, for instance, and people whose air quality where they live might not be as well protected as, as other places. 
and actually, I just wanted to mention, you know, even places that should be safe, you know, sometimes aren't. So last month, when we had really a sudden worsening of air quality in, in Calgary, where I live, I was actually working in the electrophysiology lab that day, and the whole hospital smelled like smoke. And the nurse who was scrubbed in with me for a procedure actually had to scrub out uh, because she had an asthma exacerbation and, and couldn't continue with the case. And she hadn't been outdoors. She was working in, you know, in a cardiac cath lab in, in a major, you know, tertiary care center. So that was, you know, an example of, you know, how important the air quality stuff is. So think about people who can't even be indoors. So our, I think a lot about the wildland firefighters, but also you know, people who are forced to be outside when they, they shouldn't or have to exert themselves outside. Thanks, Steve. And Emily, how about the, the respiratory populations that are at high risk? Yeah, so um, I've mentioned folks with airways disease or obstructive lung disease. So those with asthma and COPD are considered high risk groups. But very similar to what Steve said about really everybody, I try to talk to everybody that I can in my clinic about uh, the potential impact of of wildfire smoke and really get them to prepare. Other high-risk groups uh, that are important to think about, and again, as Steve said, the more of these boxes you tick, the higher risk you likely are, the more that you have in combination. But folks who are at the extremes of age, so folks who are older, um, greater than 60, greater than 65, we think probably have higher risk. And uh, people who are young, so under the age of five and infants, we also know that um, pregnant people uh, may have higher risk of adverse effects as well. And I have a fair number with asthma being a disease that really spans across the life course. Um, I I am an adult respirologist, but I, I care for a number of individuals who are pregnant. So I think about that population carefully. Perfect. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I sort of think of those two populations that the part, populations at, who is at risk of an event, whether that be myocardial infarction or arrhythmia, and those would be people with previous disease, previous respiratory disease, where they, they can trigger an event. And then those populations with low functional capacity, where even at, in good air days, they have low functional capacity and they're, they're close to their breaking point. And so this, is, this can be the tipping point for those people. Emily, a lot of your recommendations or your, your work, your research uh, pertains to uh, the development of tools for patients and, and providers regarding recommendations for the general population and at-risk populations. Would you take us through that? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, for raising that. So I my work really centers on how to protect populations that are higher risk from environmental exposures and wildfire smoke is such a prominent one where I practice out at UBC and in Vancouver and really truly one that's affecting everybody globally because smoke travels thousands of miles from the source. And so a project that I've been working on with support from a number of folks, including the Legacy for Airway Health out at um, Vancouver Coastal Health Research Institute It's trying to develop an action plan strategy for folks who are at higher risk and really anybody who wants to plan in advance of these smoke events. And there is a lot of really great information out there um, that the government of Canada, that health institutions have put out to try to protect the population, patient-facing resources, doctor-facing resources, really at, at sort of every level of health literacy and education to try to help people to understand 
what their air quality is, what interventions they can do to try to clear the air around them or prevent their exposure and mitigate their exposure, and then what actions to take in the setting of, of these events. And so we've been working really hard to try to put all these together in a focus document that can be used in encounters really between a provider and a patient or between a community health organization and a patient to really run through all these things in a consolidated way. What we know is that more diverse forms of messaging help and not every form of messaging is going to work for every individual. And we're hopeful that this can fill some gaps in there. So as we start to talk about some of the interventions, I can run through this a bit more, but this is a resource that's under development and it's posted online for anybody who wants to help to develop it or work on this for anybody who's who's at risk. This is not specific to respiratory populations, but at centerforlunghealth.ca. Perfect. Yeah, we'll, we'll, and we'll put that in our uh, podcast summary, the, the link to that. But how, how do you assess air quality? What, what um, tips do you give patients where to look, uh, how to interpret the air quality index? Yeah, so um, Canada is fantastic and sort of ahead of the game with this air quality health index that's available, which really takes a look at three of the major pollutants that are tied to health outcomes. And that includes PM 2.5, which Stephen mentioned, and I'll go into in a bit. Also, uh, nitrogen dioxide or NO2 and ozone or O3 and really sort of places a um, score uh, that is updated on a very frequent basis regionally. This is available throughout Canada. There are certain areas that have higher concentrations of the government air monitors that help to calculate this score and may have a bit more data, but it's really something that can be looked to as a measure of what the air quality is outside. And then the other metric, PM 2.5 alone, that's one of the particular, it's one of the pollutants that's released in wildfire smoke that is very closely tied with health effects and can be looked at really alone, um, can be looked at and, and used to sort of get a sense of what the risks are in the outdoor air. So getting access to those metrics is really important and is a first step in understanding what air quality is and what risk is and how to modify behavior in that setting. If you look outside and you see smoke, the risk is high to very high. <laughs> so there's a sort of a visual check. But just because you look outside and you don't see smoke doesn't always mean that the air quality is at what would be considered a healthier level. So understanding where to access these this information online, you can either look online for the air quality health index through Government of Canada websites. There's Environment Canada alerts that can be signed up for that I, I would encourage folks to sign up not only for the the air quality index, but also uh, heat, heat alerts as well. And we can talk about that a bit too. There's also apps on the phone. So WeatherCan has an app where the AQHI for your region will pop up. And then firesmoke.ca is really important to look at too. And then once we try to get folks signed up for this or aware of this and able to access this, there's always questions, well, what do I do with this information? <laughs> so yeah, how, exactly. How yeah, like what does this mean? <laughs> Should I go for my bike ride in the morning and spend three hours out in that air? What 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 numbers should I use? Yeah. And then what numbers should I use for my patients? Absolutely. So I think um, Canada has done a really nice job of providing some color coding for this and really some kind of matrices that can be used to say, are you in a high risk group? Yes or no. And then based on that, how should you modify your behavior? So some quick rules of thumb is that one through three for the air quality health index is in sort of this blue zone. 
And typically there's no recommendation for modification of activities in any group, outdoor activities in any group, unless you have symptoms. And that's the key with any of these steps and any of these metrics. If you have symptoms, you need to lower your activity level. You need to check in with yourself, with your health. You need to get to cleaner air and you need to contact your health provider if things are getting beyond sort of the management of your regular medications. Then when we move into the yellow zone, which is an AQHI, usually between four to six, that's when we're starting to think, oh, we're in a moderate zone. We got to be a little bit more careful. Folks who are already known to be at higher risk, some of those groups that we talked about may need to start to modify their activity already. And that's, that's typically the recommendation. Folks who are not in any of the high risk groups don't necessarily have to modify their activity, but really need to check in and listen to their body. And if they're having symptoms, for me, respiratory symptoms, I think about shortness of breath, burning in the lungs, chest heaviness or tightness, cough, anything that's starting. But really, you can think about eye irritation, other other irritation, just something feels off, really lower your activity levels. Because we know when you're when you're having higher levels of activity, you're inhaling more air, you're getting a higher dose of whatever is surrounding you. And then certainly when you're getting to the much higher levels, so we think about the red levels, the very high levels, those are things where everybody should really be modifying their activity and trying to stay out of that air pollution as as much as they can. And in terms of what to do if you have to go out or focuses on, you know, in the home, what can you do to try and improve the air quality? So Steve gave a really vivid example of what can happen in the indoor environment when the outside air comes in. And and that's just it. If you don't do anything, outside air comes in and the indoor environment isn't always much safer than the outdoor environment. But there's things we can do and there's sort of different levels. Not everybody has access to all of these levels, but we we work really hard to encourage people and let them know that when we walk through this information, Every step that they can take makes them more protected than they were before they were taking that step. And there should be a way for us to find some resources for everybody at every level. So things you can do is really uh, come inside. (laughs) And then the idea is to prevent outside air, outside smoky air from coming in. So make sure windows are closed. If you have any um, systems that are pulling outside air in, air conditioning systems, heating systems, and so forth, talking to your service provider or doing your best as you can to make sure you set those sorts of things to recirculate mode so that you're you're actively hopefully those have a filter attached you're actively filtering the air that's inside and reducing the particulate levels without drawing in more particulates and more of that polluted air indoor air purifiers so portable air purifiers can be really really helpful those can be purchased certainly through big box stores online and so forth some of them are are a little bit more expensive the things to really pay attention to them are making sure that one they have a HEPA filter, which is a high efficiency particulate air filter attached. And so, and then those filters are up to date, replacing them as needed. Those are the things that really pull those small particles out of the air, the PM 2.5 and lower. And those are the particles that can get deep down into the lungs and cross into the bloodstream at the smaller levels. And so those are the real, the ones that we're trying to get out of the air that you're breathing. It's also important to think about um, when you're purchasing these air filters, take a, or these air purifiers, take a look at the space rating that they have. So every air purifier should rate how much space it's going to clean efficiently. So what we often say is pick a room in your house, a room that you're planning to sleep in, right? Because we want to make sure that you have this air, you have the best quality air for as long as possible. 
figure out what the square footage of that is and make sure it matches with the air purifier square footage that it's rated for. And that way you're going to get the most efficient cleaning of that space. But really, number one, make sure it's got a HEPA filter. I think that's important. There's other advanced things you can look at. There's something called a MERV rating, which is a minimum efficiency reporting value, ideally 13 or higher. But all those things sort of those are important to look at, but you can sort of go crazy trying to pick the perfect air cleaner. And I think really HEPA filter and making sure it's space rated are some of the key facts for that. There's also, because I mentioned price and cost. So the Canadian Revenue Agency will actually, with a prescription from a doctor saying that somebody has severe chronic disease or severe respiratory disease, you can get a tax rebate for purchase of those air cleaners as medical equipment, which can be helpful. For those that have difficulty accessing those upfront costs and so forth. There are online resources for how to build your own air filter, which actually work fairly well, at least in the acute setting. So British Columbia, which has unfortunately had a lot of experience with wildfires being on the West Coast, the BC CDC has come out with some great resources and really fact sheets about how to build your own air purifier with a box fan and just attaching an air filter to it as well. And these tend to work. And those are lower cost options for folks and can help provide some protection. Other things you can think about. So in addition to that, when you have established that clean air room, try to reduce activities that create more particulate matter, that create air pollution in that space. So if for some reason you end up dedicating your kitchen as one of your clean air spaces, you might not want to be charbroiling food or doing other things that sort of release more combustion products into the air, because that's going to really counteract a lot of the, the good you're doing with your air cleaner, dusting, sweeping, things like that, that really push up a lot of particulates into the air can kind of counteract some of the, the helpful effects of the air purifier. That's not to say don't clean your house, but that's really to say, <laughs> right, just, just be mindful of these things when there's a lot of air pollution outside as well. And then one thing that we get a lot of questions about are masks. So for a while, masks weren't something that we're focused on as an intervention because there was this concern that individuals would get a false sense of security from masks and feel like if they wore a mask and they were outside, they were fine. I think a lot of this has shifted with um, our population knowledge of masks with the COVID-19 pandemic, people becoming more comfortable with wearing and purchasing masks. And we understand that respirators, and when I say respirator, I'm thinking of an N95, a well-fitted respirator, actually provides some fairly good protection against wildfire smoke and is recommended if you have to go outside during a wildfire smoke event. These are not things that patients should wear while they're sleeping. A single layer cloth masks are not effective. Wetting the mask or wetting the cloth does not help in any appreciable way beyond just having another mask. Turns out that triple layer medical masks, if they're well-fitting, provide some moderate protection against smoke. But again, the, the, the best you can do for reducing and mitigating your exposure is really trying to get out of environments that have a lot of smoke. So what I will say too, is for folks who, who can't create that sort of an environment in their home, and that's, that's a lot. Uh, some of us don't have the luxury of having a lot of control over where we live in our home environment. The recommendation is to try to get to spaces that have clean air. And so a number of municipalities have set up uh, clean air shelters where individuals can go. Uh, and these are usually accessible through contacting your local health authority or calling 811 and trying to figure out where these might be. Or 811 can help point you to who to talk to for these sorts of things. They have some great information and are a good, a good go-to, but places you can go. And then if you don't have that, think about libraries, think about shopping malls. 
Think about your friends and family members. And that's really important, even for folks who don't have underlying respiratory or heart disease or other conditions. Think about those people in your family who do. Think about your friends who do. And think about how is it possible for you to help create a safer environment for them and provide some sort of shelter during these events. The last thing that I will mention with this as well, because um, I know it's a lot, right? And we're again, we're trying to consolidate these resources in that action plan, which I know you're going to help post map, but are available through a number of sources. That's not the be all end all. We're looking to, to try to just help people get this information. A lot of these events co-occur with heat. And we know that heat in particular can actually be more harmful, a greater risk for many populations than poor air quality. And so if we have a patient or we have a person who is really doing everything they can to kind of close off their airspace, but the temperature is rising and rising to unsafe levels, they need to get out. That's when the level of risk becomes unacceptable. They need to find a different environment. So really thinking about heat too. We don't want to, we don't want to cause more harm than good by having people stay inside during smoky days if their temperature is getting really hot inside. Lastly, thinking ahead knowing that these are events that we are experiencing recurrently, making sure that your patients are all up to date on what actions they can take in the setting of any changes in symptoms. So knowing when to call a healthcare provider, having rescue medications available, and that may, may be most pertinent to respiratory disease, but making sure that my, my own patients have a plan for when their asthma gets worse or a plan for when they start to have a COPD exacerbation and access to medications um, in that setting in, in advance before they need to call a health provider. Thinking about ways where they can in advance think about pharmacy delivery and think about things like access to food delivery and grocery delivery or who's going to bring them things so that they don't have to go out in the setting of bad air quality and expose themselves. I think that can be some really great advanced planning that can help to empower your patients. Those are amazing practical points. That if that's that's great. We've seen a lot of in the news. The, the psychological effects of, of wildfires, you know, people being so upset and sort of in desperation. And uh, Steve, what, what, what can we do maybe to, to get up front before this in terms of wildfires and how, how do we try to prevent some of these? What, what, a, what advice do you have for, for the listeners on that? Well, it's a, it's a really great and a, and a hard question. And I don't know if I have a way to prevent it. I mean, some of this distress that people are experiencing is, you know, it's expected, it's normal, right? We have most, those of us who are in our age group have, have grown up in a time when we didn't have to worry about this so much. And now things have changed and it doesn't seem like they're going to change back. And so there's a certain amount of, of grief and of, of upset about that, that I think is understandable and expected. I think that conversations like we're having today and normalizing these conversations in our clinic visits with our patients and with our family and friends is really important just so that people can understand that, you know, this is a, is a serious, you know, a serious health issue as serious as some other things that we, we treat with medications and in our clinics and stuff. And I think also just having discussions about what these changes, you know, mean to, to our lives and to our, to our, the lives of our future generations, I think is really important. As you know, you know, Emily has just done an amazing job of talking about some of the ways that, you know, we can help protect individuals and, and populations from these effects that are happening. And that's, that's really important work in terms of how we're adapting to our changing climate and our changing world. And so I think, you know, everything she said, I totally agree with. 
And then the other side of the coin is how do we mitigate this, right? How do we not prevent it, but reduce the, you know, how bad this is going to get. And I think having discussions, learning a bit is the first, is the first step. Talking about climate change tends to get political pretty quickly. And uh, I think that's the wrong approach. And I think that at least my opinion is that when you start talking about the health effects and talking about it as a public health issue, it's a way to maybe depoliticize it a little bit and, and make it into a more of a practical collective action problem that's that's with a focus on protecting human health. And and then I talked, you know, in the last podcast about some of the things that people who are feeling concerned uh, can do to sort of work on this mitigation side of things. And I'll just summarize them quickly here. So using your dollars wisely, so divesting from the companies that are making this worse, donating to causes that are helping, and then getting involved in whatever way you feel able in terms of demanding action, either from local, provincial, national elected officials, or from the leaders of our of our health institutions or the companies that, uh, that we buy things from. So um, I don't want to get too far into those, but those are a lot of the things that people can do. So Perfect. Yeah. And, and people can go back and listen to that previous podcast for an expansion of that. Uh, thank you both for your collaboration on this. Uh, I, I hope we've given the listeners valuable information regarding wildfires, uh, their cardiovascular and respiratory effects, and which populations are at risk, and those specific practical points of advice that we can give our patients, both in assessing the air quality and what to do uh, during those bad air days. Uh, I'd like to thank you uh, both. Uh, thank you, Steve. Thank you, Emily. And remind the listeners that if they have topics that they'd like to listen to in the future, please contact me and we'd be pleased to, to entertain those ideas. Um, thank you both. Thanks so much, Matthew. Thanks for a great discussion. 